Today's dead idea, self-mummification. And this is our third and final episode in this very short series. And today we are going to be hearing a story of a self-mummified monk. It's going to be the Japanese Abelard and Heloise, as I have dubbed it. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music that we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife. And here is where I would normally insert a joke, but because we didn't know that we were going to be recording a third episode, I don't have one. So insert it here, Brandon. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose sweet body is just on the other side of this wall, but alas, I cannot get to her, and all I can do is caress my microphone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) With me once again are my co-hosts of the day, Nick. This is only in some ways the last episode. In other ways, this series will remain in suspended animation eternally until the coming of the future podcast. Oh, very good. Yes, the, this series will go on in new Joe perpetually. And Anna. I'm a smoking rock in the cosmic Buddha. Believable from the theology of this particular cult, so... Oh, that too, yes. You weren't <laughs> supposed to bring that up in public. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get on to our story for today. So our last story is... A Japanese Abelard and Heloise, and this is the story of Tetsumonkai Shonin. He was born in 1768. His name was Tsunada Tetsu. Tetsu means iron. And by the way, Tsunada Tetsu, that in Japanese naming customs, the second name, that is your given name. The first name is your family name. Hmm. Okay, so they gave him the name Tetsu, meaning iron, in hopes that he would become strong and powerful, because his family was a samurai family. But, however, despite being samurai, they were a poor family. And this was quite common. It's something that seems to happen whenever you have like a class that's given more food than the rest, and so you, your population spikes, but you just you can't have everybody be of equal status. So you get a stratification of the samurai classes, and the ones on the lower rungs are often quite poor, and oftentimes even more impoverished than a fairly well-to-do farmer. Sure. So that was their case. They were quite poor. They had to work as farmers despite being samurai and even work as day laborers sometimes. And at age 24, again, that would be 25 by Japanese reckoning, there was an altercation between Tetsu and two samurai, two other samurai. And there's a bit of a discrepancy in the various versions of this story. One story says that he was angry that the two samurai were drunk on the job of flood control. But according to Ken Jeremiah, the more likely story is that this was an argument over a lover. So according to this version of the story, (laughs) Tetsu fell in love with a prostitute in the pleasure district of Tsuruoka. The city was built on. I was going to go there. Sorry. <laughs> That's a throwback to our uh, cuneiform episode, right? This district was built on pleasure. Doesn't sound quite as impressive. No. Yeah, exactly. This paper house was built on... Uh... Anyway, the pleasure district of Tsuruoka was called Akagawa, which literally means Red River. And there was a quarrel between him and these two samurai over this prostitute that he had fallen in love with. <laughs> Flood control. They drew swords and... According to the story, he then killed them with his bare fists. 
So How? I don't know. This again with a previous uh, story about the fuck-up farmer. Apparently, if you're destined to become a living Buddha, you're really good at curb-stomping samurai. Yeah, so or it seems. The, or the samurai in all these stories are just like Star Wars stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah. All over with one hit, you know? Also, so. Iron Fist against the samurai was two katanas. This really sounds like an anime. Yeah. <laughs> it does. He probably spent like five minutes just kind of like souping up his chi. I think so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, yeah. So he kills them with his bare fists. So again, now this this is not the same situation as the farmer killing the samurai because they're in this case they're equal status, both right. samurai. Oh, different status within the samurai class, but either way, he's still murdered two people in cold blood, basically, and this is a crime, right? So he has to flee. He flees to Mount Yudono specifically to Chirinji Temple. And there he becomes Tetsumonkai, and he trains in the Swamp of Wizards. Yes! <laughs> well, in training, the prostitute from his former life comes to visit him. And we never get a name for her. I w- we wish we did, so that she's a little bit more of a well-rounded character, but we don't, so... Okay, sorry. Anyway, the prostitute comes to visit him, and she's like, What are you doing here? How could you ever have left me? Why don't you love me anymore? And he says to her, I still love you, but now I'm dedicating my life to religion, training and austerities to develop my spirit for all humankind. Lifting this green guy on my back. <laughs> Yoda. Don't get jealous. <laughs> well, anyway, she doesn't believe him, maybe because, you know, she knows what he used to be like hanging out in the Red River District, right. you know. So she's like, come on, right? You just flee here to escape the Shogun's men. You're not really into this. But he says, please wait. And he goes into a back room. And when he comes back, he has something wrapped in paper. And he says, forget uh, about me. And he hands her the package. And then he walks away. <laughs> what? Sorry. <laughs> what well, we were both assuming. What was it? Okay, yeah. So he answers the package and he walks away. She opens it, and you already, of course, okay. know what it's going to be. It is his his junk, his manhood. Wait, all of it? All of it, both penis and testicles. Oh. Um, yep. Anyway. Is a nice package? <laughs> hey, she came all the way up to the swamp. She obviously thought so. <laughs> well, he was her bread and butter, right? He was one of, one of her patrons. That's true. She lost so. a client. So... Anyway, she gets the package, opens it, sees what it is, bursts into tears, flees down the mountain, and that's the end of that part of the story, but not the end of the package. I wondered. <laughs> Does it self-mummify? Uh, How much Poe are we talking in here? Um, actually... Oh god, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> Does it like... What if that's all his animal vitality? Let me continue with the story. So, somehow, this uh, package... It's passed around. It circulates the Pleasure District. Eventually, it's dried and preserved and it is sent to Nangaku Temple, where it is kept as a saintly relic. Whether it is actually mummified, that I do not know. Okay. But anyway, it's kept as a saintly relic. This temple. Word starts to get around that this guy goes to some extreme lengths for the sake of his <laughs> austerities. And his extreme lengths are gone. <laughs> <laughs> and he begins to attract many followers, which... 
he travels with all over North Japan, including Hokkaido, where I was living when I was a teacher. And at that time, Hokkaido would have been still a frontier, kind of like the Wild West for America in the 19th century.、Uh, at the time, that was so. Hokkaido is the traditional place where the Ainu people. I was going to ask. They, which, they were the indigenous people of northernmost parts of what today is Japan. And by this period, which late 18th, early 19th century for our story, during this period, the Japanese had conquered Hokkaido but not completely subdued it. There were still many Ainu revolts during this time. So it was still very Wild Westy for him to travel around this area doing his missionizing.、Mm-hmm. All those wolf kami, too. Bear kami? No, sorry. Well, I was making a Princess Mononoke joke. Oh,、sorry. Princess Mononoke. Okay. Well, bears are very important, actually, to the Ainu. I knew, yeah. yeah. They were、mm-hmm. one of the bear、yeah. cult people.、Mm. Yeah. Yep. They had a whole ceremony where they capture a young bear and then they, and they treat it as if it is a deity. Because, as I recall, it's something like one of the spirits that they would venerate is believed to be kind of like incarnated in the bear. And so they treat it like a deity and give it all these honors and stuff. Well, it's caged, admittedly, but, you know. And then at the end, there's this great honorific ceremony where they allow the spirit to return to the heavens by sacrificing the bear. Huh. As I recall, that's how that goes. I heard, of, I heard about a Pacific North, Northwest tribe that does the same thing. So well, this... it was kind of possible to be a, a circumpacific a... thing. Really? To an extent, yeah. That is so weird. Yeah. I mean, interesting. I wouldn't be too surprised. I knew, I think, have, my understanding is they have a fair amount in common culturally with that kind of like Siberian, North Asian kind of culture, which probably would have traversed over, you know, over the Bering Strait and populated Alaska and those parts. So. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so anyway,、Sorry. he's、yeah. missionizing in Hokkaido, right? And then he missionizes all over、um, Japan, including. Edo, which is the name at the time of what we now call Tokyo. And there he encounters an epidemic of eye disease. Again? Yep, yep,、hmm. keeps coming up again and again and again. He happens to know something of herbal medicine, so he's like, great, I'll do my best to treat these people here, but he doesn't manage to cure it. So he's like, crap, what am I going to do? So he turns to the only other thing that he knows, which、what? is his spirituality. Self mutilation?、Right? Yes. That too. In fact. <laughs> He turns to his austerities, and in order to cure the eye disease of all these people, he decides to pluck out his own left eye.、Huh. And he throws it into the Sumida River. Oh. Not the same river where the other later living Buddha was blinded, I assume. I, no, I don't think so, because this one's near Tokyo, and the other, I think, was in、yeah. Yamagata Prefecture, <laughs> which is northern Japan. There's no info given in the story, as far as I could find, of whether the epidemic stopped. But obviously, this would probably make him super famous too. So, anyway, he goes on with a whole career of this kind of stuff. Then in 18. 18- What body press does he have left? Yeah, speaking <laughs> of Darth Vader here.、Yeah. In 1819, at age 51, at Churenji Temple, he decides to undertake the 3,000 days or 8.2 years of pilgrimaging to the shrine atop Udono Mountain three times daily. This is the guy where we get that information about. He does it three、mm. times daily. It's.、Hmm. Four hour trip each way, so eight hours, three times a day equals 24 hours, equals all day for 3,000 days. I don't know how that's possible, but you know, we did our speculating last time, yeah. So, take it 
for what it is, right? Dude sawed off his junk and wrapped it up. After that, everything's probably easy. I'm sure he had the determination. I just don't know how his body could physically do it. He completed this feat of austerities in 1827 at age 59, and then at that point decided to self-mummify. There's no mention in the story again of the special diet. Maybe he was already on it during the last 3,000 days. That would make sense, but the information isn't there. I don't know. What he says when he decides to self-mummify is, as long as I have a body, even if I work myself to the bone, I can still bring salvation to mankind. But if I die, I can't. I assume what he's referring to is that ability of his body to continue to radiate merit even after he uh, dies, so long as it's preserved as a mummy. Mm -hmm. In order to continue bringing salvation to mankind, I must leave my body in this world and become a Sokushin Butsu, or the Buddha in the flesh. So he gathered his friends to a banquet in which he laughed and joked heartily, and then buried himself in a hole behind the temple. And his last words were, To those who prayed for me, I won't let you down. After that, his body is dried by candles and incense, and then interred. So a little deviation from the typical there. They seem to do an extra step to make sure he mummifies. Not quite sure why they do it there and not other stories, I don't know. But he's dug up three years later, found to be mummified, and enshrined at Churenji, the temple. Today, uh, his body uh, shows one empty eye socket, and I think that is the one, probably, that I saw, that I mentioned. Sure. Wow. Um, where it looks like there's something preserved in that eye socket, because he plucked out his eye and then it grew over. That's what mm -hmm. I guess was there. Life gets weird once you've been in the Swamp of Wizards for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. He is today remembered as one of the most holy in all of the Yudono sect of Shugendo. So that does it for our more colorful stories. That's the story of the Japanese Abelard and Heloise, as I've dubbed it. So having heard them, any thoughts, any responses, any themes running through them that come out, stand out to you? The guy had balls. Oh, God. Had. <laughs> it was impressive. I'll give it yeah. that. I'm feeling weirdly patient about having brought up the dick in a bag story. Like the other Japanese dick in a bag story I knew before this. Yeah. It's mm. a joke. Erogoro. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was Erogoro Hagiography. <laughs> okay. So the last thing we have to talk about is how did this dead idea go extinct? Right? <laughs> and also remember, we didn't talk about the 20th century guy. That's true. Okay. So, as we mentioned in the first episode, there was a little thing called the Meiji Restoration. That happened in 1867. And it was a big thing where there was a shift in power. The samurai were basically on the out. The shogun lost the status of being like the person in charge. Instead, power was shifted over to the emperor that had been there all along, but had just been ceremonial like the Queen of England today, but now power was being shifted to the emperor for real. That's when they decided to divide Buddhism and Shinto, which wasn't even ever really Shinto per se as a religion in its own right. It was always just folk customs that then intermingled with Buddhism, and it was never really very separate. It yeah. always grew up together. So there was this very artificial effort to divide those traditions and all the different temples. They were given a choice, basically, to you have to either join Shinto or join Buddhism. 
And then Shinto itself was made very intentionally as a reconstruction based on these old, old stories from before Buddhism ever came to Japan. Then Shinto is basically an attempt at guessing what the religion was like back then and then making it for the modern day. So that happens, right? And Shinto and Buddhism are ordered to separate. And part of this is self-mummification comes up for review, basically, on, on the rosters of these people who are doing this, I assume. And they decide, you know what, this is kind of seem, seeming pretty outdated and a little kind of gross or whatever. The neo-pagan bureaucrats decide relic veneration is out. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, even in its heyday, most people in Japan thought it was weird and gross, too, because they were it was not part of their version of Buddhism. So self-mummification is outlawed in 1868, the year after the Meiji Restoration begins. Those already on the path to self-mummification at the time are ordered to stop what they're doing, stop, you know, the diet, leave off it, just be like normal Buddhist monks. Well, that would be annoying. It would be very annoying, yes. And apparently you don't get to have self-governance as a temple anymore. Yeah. Yeah, because the government is now telling them what to do. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, a number of monks were already undergoing this fast at the time, and most of them stopped. And for those monks, what they ended up doing, instead of having their preserved mummy corpse to put on the altar, because, you know, they never became mummies, instead they made wooden effigies of them and enshrined those on altars in temples. Did they keep on with the diet, though? I mean, like... No, they were ordered to stop that, because they would die if they kept on the diet. So they're back to normal veg and fruit and... Yeah. Maybe some cereals. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how how far off they went off the diet. Generally, vegetarianism in traditional Japan is vegetables plus fish. They didn't really consider that to be meat. Also, interestingly, even though Buddhist monks in Japan are not supposed to drink any alcohol, sake doesn't count for some reason. Hmm. Yeah. Don't drink any alcohol except for the main alcohol that are culture drinks. Exactly. <laughs> You can also drink beer in fasting periods in Slavic versions of Eastern Orthodoxy, too. <laughs> Interesting. Just not vodka. <laughs> so, anyway, you can go and see these wooden effigies that are on altars now all over northern Japan. Do they still get treated as though it's, again, visiting the, the living Buddha, or are they more just considered... I mean, are they considered... I'm not sure what the status would be cause to I a believer. If they'd have, again, that vital, radiant, um, beneficial energy or if they're just yeah i wonder if it's just honoring their effort yeah that's what i would expect but again i do not know so most of them stop however not all of them stop there is particular monk named tetsu ryukai and that actually remember tetsu means iron iron. Mm -hmm. ryu means dragon and kai which is an honorific coming from kukai but it actually the the Character that you use means sea, so it's like Iron Sea Dragon is literally what his name is. Good name for a wizard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He says, no, I'm not going to stop. He ignores the law, and he dies in 1878 from his fast. And then the legend of him says that he appears to his compatriots, his other monks at his temple, in dreams, telling him to, hey, come dig me up. But of course, this would be against the law for those monks, so they have to sneak out of the temple at night to dig him up. But they do, and they find that he has, in fact, self-mummified. But they could not enshrine his body without obviously breaking the law. So 
what's a monk to do? Oh, by the way, we're probably the only ones who have custody of these records that would know mm-hmm. when he dies. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they forged the death documents to say that actually he died in 1862, considerably before the Meiji Restoration uh-huh. laws took effect. So that's how they got around that. So Meiji laws outlaw everybody from doing it. Most of them stop. This guy doesn't, but dies. Done. Okay. Then, pretty much this is basically forgotten in Japan. Mm -hmm. About maybe a century. Yeah, nearly a century goes by. And this being kind of like a little-known sect in the first place, it's not that hard for it to just kind of like disappear into the mists of history. So most Japanese forget that this ever even was a thing. Until the 1960s. By the 1960s, most people have no idea, right? And then suddenly, in 1961, five mummies are discovered, in quotes, by chance in northern Japan. Now, they've been in the temples all the time. Right. So local people would have known. These people maintaining them would certainly have known. But, like, I have to imagine that these are probably, like, academics from Tokyo that come out and be like, oh, my God, way out in the sticks, there's this thing. Right. You know? What the hell? You know, how come we don't know about this, right? It's like us going to the Appalachian Mountains and being like, oh my god, you've been doing this for a hundred years? Yeah. Like, yeah. We've discovered that your dialect is exactly like medieval Scots. (laughs) Right. That kind of thing. Exactly. Discovered. (laughs) Discovered academically. Right. Yeah. So, in 1961, this comes out. Most people in Japan are bewildered by it. Then that same year, an academic group called Nihon Mira Kenkyu no Grupa is formed. It means Japanese Mummy Research Group. <laughs> Does that ever come up in Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> and this group so learns of a much more recent man named Bukkai, who practiced severe austerities in the mountains of northern Japan. For example, according to locals, this man meditated in rough waters, and was swept away and injured against rocks several times by them. He poured oil on his left hand and lit it aflame. He died in 1903 in a self-mummification attempt, but the body was never unearthed because it was illegal, and apparently he hadn't taken that feat that says you can appear in people's dreams. (laughs) Well, he couldn't cast fireball very well. (laughs) Burning hands. Burning hands, though. Yeah. Nerd. So they hear that this guy did this, right? So what do they do? They decide, hey, what if we dig him up now? So they dig him up, and they found that, in fact, he had Uh self-mummified. Now, the locals who are still around who had known him spoke of him as a man who... They didn't speak of him as an enlightened being or a very, like, a great and holy, saintly man. They spoke of him as a man who was confused rather than enlightened, misled, misguided, that kind of a thing. The culture had reached a point where they no longer found this credible, you know? There are still people, I'm sure, who, like the really dedicated ones, who, for example, take care of them in the temples. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people still left who are believers in the true sense. But for the most part, people even in northern Japan... Um, Even locals, you know, he would be like, that's that crazy hermit. So yeah, even locals here basically think of him as this kind of just 
crazy hermit that lives out in the Jundland wastes, right? Like, right. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Crazy old swamp wizard. Old ben. Yeah, yeah. He's just an old, old fool, right? Who's um, more foolish? The fool or the fool who follows him? Exactly. And they view his death really not as this holy act, but more as a simple suicide. N- none of the same respect. What? <laughs> a complicated suicide. A com- well, yeah. Multi-stage. Not simple. Multi-staged. <laughs> Did he but do the box thing? A clear-cut case of uh, simple suicide. Yeah, did he do the box? I don't know. Huh. Hmm. I would assume so. Because otherwise worms would get at you and stuff. So that's the story of the 20th century man who managed to self-mummify. Is he now enshrined? The last known attempt. What? Yeah, is he now enshrined? I don't believe he is. Hmm. Uh, this was, they were, he was dug up by this academic group, mm. right? right? So I, I assume that, in fact, he... I assume he's property of the university or something. Yeah, now it's an Indiana Jones plot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's this long archive of mummies buried in a government vault. Best oh, God. Best yeah. That's the story of the self-mummified monks of Japan. There, like I said, there's some literature today in Japanese, Italian, and French, but there's still very, very little about it in English. So even just this podcast adds you know, a significant amount probably to what is available out there. Shugendo is still around. Um, what happened they, to the Swamp of Wizards? Yeah. I'm sure it's still there, but <gasps> if you're one of these people who follows this religion, there's something about you're not allowed to speak of what goes on there. Okay. Yeah. First rule of Swamp Wizard Club is you cannot <laughs> talk about Swamp Wizard Club. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they passed this law that you couldn't self-mummify, but uh, with the Meiji Restoration, but at the same time they're like, oh yeah, those guys on the altar can stay there. Yeah, you're kind of grandfathered in at that yeah, point. Yeah. What are they going to do, you know? Yeah. It would it would be a I think especially as a new government, mm-hmm. there's such a thing as overstepping your bounds, well, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like people are going to get majorly pissed if you mess with their religious altars and and holy yeah. items. It could be a relic. Holy yeah. relics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Was... Yeah, and they didn't try to outlaw Buddhism or anything. They just tried to Just don't do that again. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. in fact, Shugendo uh became part of Buddhism when it was Shugendo, as its own religion, was officially abolished in 1872 and ordered to, you know, join one of pick the... Pick a side. Yeah, pick a side. And it, chooses, it chose to join Shingon Buddhism, which it remains a part of today. People still belong to it. You can see some videos on YouTube of it, including some Westerners that have, like, gone to do some of the austerities and things. And from what I can tell from, like, some of their temples like websites and the videos and stuff, it seems like what we get to see in Western media is spun a bit in a way that would appeal to Westerners. It seems to be like, this is a nature religion where you go and practice in nature to connect with nature through austerities. (laughs) To use nature to punish yourself. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But, But, I mean, I could definitely understand how you would learn a lot about yourself, even if you didn't believe any of the accompanying theology, just, you know, like, think of a simple fast, how much you learn about what you don't actually, how much you can survive without. There's something that you gain by just being like, oh, you know what, I I don't really need that tonight. I, you know. Mm -hmm. It really does make me irritable to try and go without anything consciously that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. That's embarrassing. I I can drink coffee now. What the hell? And, and, you know, you know, the little things that make you irritated throughout the day and daily life, if you have just come back from, you know, a, like a pilgrimage where you breathed in red pepper fumes, 
and be like, you know what, this is this is not worth my irritation, you know? And it's easier to accept things. So I can imagine it being worthwhile to do some of these practices. Maybe not lighting your hand on fire. Maybe but not sawing off your junk. <laughs> maybe maybe there are a few things that probably leave behind. Uh, yeah. But my point is it's it doesn't seem completely crazy to me. And having gone through all of the whole backstory of how, you know, th the reasons that were behind what these monks did, I can kind of see that as well. You know, it's not something I would ever do. <laughs> I wasn't that interested in, uh, you know, making a difference in my students' lives that I would <laughs> dedicate all of my eternal hereafter to it, you know. but So we're not going to see that picture? <laughs> no, I am not going to be mummified with through coffee and chalk and in, encased in a, in a glass sports trophies case in a high school. I did my part. So um, here's our um, ladies' football trophy, gold medal, fifth year in a row. Very proud. Here's our mummified ESL teacher. He really went <laughs> above and beyond. <laughs> well, anyway, that's where we'll end it today. Thanks for being on the show once again, Nick and Anna. Thank you. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, remember to support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. If you do, you get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. And if you do that, I can do you up as a treat-eating monk, maybe our first treat-eating nun. I don't know if you do that. <laughs> I think that's so, your vows. If you send Brandon a dick pic, <laughs> will he draw it in a bag, castrated as a gift of austerity? I do not want to find out the answer to that question. Oh, come on. No, nobody try that. Please edit that out. Please make sure that's a really detailed review, though. <laughs> Cross promotional. All right, so that's the end of our series on self mummification. The next thing we got coming up is uh, Moism, a philosophy from ancient China that was the chief rival of Confucianism in its early years, but which almost no one hears about today. And the Moists actually seem surprisingly modern in their ideas when you go back and look at it. I'm really surprised they really basically seem like ancient Chinese leftists to me. Not exactly communists, not exactly Democrats or progressives, but somewhere in that spectrum... It just really seems like something that would have come out of late 19th century, early 20th century political philosophy. Moism, mo problems. Oh, <laughs> God. That's going to be an interesting one. So we'll see you next time for that. Thank you, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>